Welcome to another Theology Podcast, and I'm C.R. Wiley, and I'm joined by a couple of friends who are with me for almost every show, and I'll let them introduce themselves in a minute, but I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've taught philosophy, been a real estate investor, and written some books even. Enough about me. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine, Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries, and a retired and recovering history professor. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself, and then I've got a couple of things to say, and then we'll kick it back to you, uh, because you are the man on the <laughs> hot spot today. <laughs> the hot seat today. I'm Tom Price. I'm a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist. I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. University of St. Joseph here locally, and off and on a few other places. Well, you want to let folks know about a couple of things coming up that will, I think, be of interest to the to the podcast folks. One is a conference I'm speaking at uh, in May, May 15th and 16th in Miami. So I'm going to be down there enjoying some sunshine and uh, enjoying some company. And I'll be speaking at the Thank God for Bitcoin conference. Now, uh, the Thank God for Bitcoin conference was founded by a missionary who had served in Uruguay, and uh, he saw firsthand what currency devaluation is like when refugees from Venezuela flooded the country. Uh, these are folks who saw uh, a prosperous country uh, just sort of tank, and they saw their currency lose value uh, very rapidly, and they were left destitute. Um the same thing could happen to us, folks. Bitcoin uh, is one thing that uh, could be useful, uh, not only uh, when it comes to preserving wealth, but also kind of surviving in tough times. And so the Bitcoin conference uh, is intended to address that from a Christian perspective. Anyway, uh, we'll have a link in the show notes for that. The other thing that we want folks to know about is we're going to be in Memphis in June. We're going to be conducting a live show at the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, General Assembly. Now, we won't actually be on the floor of the assembly, although if they really wanted us to be, uh, we'd be willing to do it. But we're going to be <laughs> in a very posh restaurant, and we're going to enjoy good food and good drinks and the company of anyone who'd like to join us. So if you're in the PCA and you intend to be at uh, the General Assembly, or if you uh, just live in the Memphis area or in Tennessee and want to join us, uh, we'll uh, make sure that you learn more about that going forward. But anyway, we wanted you to put that on your calendar because it's going to be uh, on Wednesday. And the date, let me get this in front of me here. The date is, there we go. Okay, it's going to be the 14th, Wednesday, the 14th of June. We will be live in Memphis. Anyway, enough of that. Tom, let's get into what we're supposed to be talking about today, what the people pay the good money for. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, if, <laughs> well, we'll see after this one. <laughs> um, so hopefully this is posting um, at, right after Easter. Um, so uh, Christ has risen indeed. Um, and I thought it timely, uh, the topic, it's going to be angels, demons, and Christ's victory over death and the gates of hell, or Christus um, Victor. Um, so I thought it timely, since last week we covered uh, the name A Wolf article, um, what, that was The Return of the Old Gods, was that the, the title? Did yeah. I have that right? Okay. Yeah. Um, 
And, and then also, you know, following this, this week, um, is, you know, of course the, com- uh, commemorating, um, Christ's passion and crucifixion and the celebration of his resurrection. So I wanted to build on some of the import of that for things we're, in, we're dealing with, the realities we're still dealing with, you know, um, as Christians living in the world, uh, post-resurrection. Um, what, what, conditions are out there spiritually that sometimes are off our radar and may be actually uh, more pronounced in their impact than we often give credence to. Um, we do confess weekly um, these things, but sometimes we don't, uh, they're not on our, on our radar all of the time. And I do think uh, theologically and especially biblically, these things should be more pronounced than on our radar most of the time. Um, so <clears throat> it's worth noting that it's sort of Christians Im- impacted a lot by the, you know, the Reformed tradition in particular, that Christ's death on the cross um, rightfully emphasized his death in our place. Um, we hold that as a key biblical motif, um, something which can be more theoretically stated as a satisfaction view or substitutionary understanding of the atonement, um, satisfying, you know, the, you know, the matters of, of justice and uh, dealing with our sin issue, and of course, uh, Christ coming in our place. Um, And those things are rightfully biblical and rightfully center stage. Um, But sometimes uh, we we don't realize there are other aspects of the atonement that are also talked about in Scripture, and they are are worth holding on to and unpacking, not as a competition in competition with those other views, but actually as complementing and supplementing them. Um, one of these would be not only that Christ dies in our place and takes our curse onto himself, not only that he makes satisfaction for sin through his atoning death, but through Christ's death, um, he not only was reconciling the world to himself, um, but he was overcoming the oppressive power of Satan over creation given, of course, after our fall and submission to Satan from our first parents. And this often goes by the, uh, the, the term Christus Victor, um, Christ the victor, the victory of Christ redeeming us from the oppressive powers of Satan, demons, sin, death, and the hell, the way in which on the cross and in being buried, Christ goes and plunders hell, basically. Um, the early church was really drawn to this uh, aspect of the biblical teaching. Um, they really found that as part and central to being delivered from the oppressive gods um, and forces um, that were in the world and that had impacted things, I think, in a more tangible way for them. Um, they were very aware of well, they, there were certain limits in, that they had in terms of control over the material creation, but also there were very static orders that were justified um, basically by the, the, you know, the gods or the god um, or some other kind of religious hierarchy or configuration. And, uh, and as Christianity came on the scene and these things were seen really as certain principalities and powers um, that weren't there to actually foster human communion with God and others the right way, um, but actually imprison them. <laughs> this message of the cross, uh, Christ having victory, was radically liberating 
um, and transformative. And it empowered the church in the spirit with a, a strong drive to go about basically claiming Christ's victory and casting out <laughs> demons in his name. Um, and so that's kind of where I want to pick up. And maybe I'll just pause here and give you guys a little time to reflect on that. Um, yeah, a, a couple of things come to mind immediately. Athanasius talks about that in um, on the Incarnation, where he talks about, you know, now that Christ has come, the old, you know, the old pagan deities, just, you know, magic, all of these things are, are suppressed. Um, and when you move, what, what gets interesting is that when you move into Northern Europe, into the Germanic regions and so on, um, this idea of Christ as victor is going to, work on a couple of different levels. One of them is things like Boniface chopping down Thor's oak. Okay, we're, we're defeating the other gods. But also in the, in the culture, which was essentially a warrior culture, what you actually see is Christ portrayed as a victorious warrior king pretty consistently. Um, you, you, there is actually a work... Um, the Highland, I think it was called something very close to that, that is a retelling of the gospel in the form of a Germanic warrior epic <laughs> uh, with, with Christ, of course, as, as the warlord. Um, so you know, th these ideas are really central to Christianity, particularly in Western Europe, for about the first thousand years. Uh, of, of Christianity. It begins to change because of two things. One of them, Anselm, uh, in, in an era in which education really fell into decline, um, it, it starts being revived in law schools. Hmm. And then Anselm comes along and he starts reformulating the doctrine of atonement in legal categories because that was the cutting edge intellectual yeah. life of his day. And, and he's bequeathed that to the Western church ever since. Uh, the other key person is Bernardo Clairvaux, but that would get us a little bit too far afield, I'm afraid. Um, he, he, uh, he takes it in some, some other directions as well. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that comes to mind for me is, uh, is our neglect of the resurrection, which is uh, troubling in that uh, it's center stage in particular in the book of Acts. If you go through the book of Acts, the the thing that the disciples are witnesses of that they have to inform other people about because, uh, because they're the ones who saw it is the resurrection. Uh, the crucifixion was public information. Everybody, everybody knew. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> as though they were witnesses of the crucifixion. Um, so, you know, we see that on the road to Emmaus, you know, when you know, the Lord approaches the disciples and, you know, he inquires, you know, tongue in cheek, uh, what are you talking about? And then they say, are you the only person who hasn't heard about what happened? So everybody knew what happened. What uh, <laughs> folks didn't know about was the resurrection. And uh, Paul places a stress on the, on the role of the resurrection for, for our justification. This is another thing that's sometimes obscured. You know, take a look mm -hmm. at Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Verse 25. Uh, we have propitiation uh, uh, referred yeah. to, uh, but, we, uh, but what's remarkable is that the way uh, Paul puts it. So he says, 
referring to Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Okay, there we have propitiation and raised for our justification. That second part, raised for our justification, is lost on a lot of people. And, you know, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, we're still in our sins. So there's a connection even uh, there between Christ's victory over death and sin and our justification that needs to be developed um, because it's been neglected. Absolutely. And I, and I I think there are aspects in the rich biblical picture that complement each other. And when they do get left out, you can, you can create problematic theories of the atonement. And I think in the, in the field of theology, we, we tend to have someone come out and kind of bring out one particular theory and it takes over the kind of stage for a while and almost pushes everyone out or tries to order everything around it. But I think we've, we've come to recognize that, you know, a lot of these ways of formulating it for systematic purposes are, are, you know, they're really, there isn't one particular way you have to order it as long as you're getting these all in there and giving them their fair place. And I think, um, I think it was Gustav Aulen, uh, the, uh, the theologian, um, Generate a couple generations back now who who really brought Christus Victor back into the picture. But I think the tendency tended to be to just put that at the center and then get rid of some of the emphasis on the substitutionary theories and and the like. Um, But my point of bringing it up is merely it it is biblical. Um, You can find it right there in Colossians. Uh, There's strong emphasis on the significance of Christ's uh, uh, atonement and resurrection for the basically, you know, putting to death death and having the victory over uh, Satan and and his power and then our own participation in it. Um, but maybe a few steps back, um, something we did talk a little bit about last week, but it's worth bringing back up is why some of these theories even um, tend to be very problematic for us um, or we just don't really have the imaginative capacity that earlier generations of Christians often had because they did have a richer biblical vision of reality than we often have today. And so one could go back to kind of just something we say in in the Creed Weekly is about God being, you know, the maker of heaven and earth. Um, This heaven and earth picture is is not merely a Ptolemaic kind of ordering of things, but is really talking about the fact that we have spiritual and physical reality and creatures, and these are interconnected but distinguishable. And then we often see the kind of relation in Scripture is put by invisible and visible um, realities. We have uh, the invisible um, being manifest through the visible, and the visible— being manifest in that relation, but also manifesting the invisible. So these two are not made to be in opposition to each other. Um, They're meant to be harmoniously related. And when they do, they all point to the kind of rich reality that God has created as it is coming from him, sustained through him and ordered to him. Um, So a lot of times the nature of the spiritual world and its relation to the visible world is uh, debated you know, you know, how to exactly order that. I think our sacramental debates often are around the issue. How, how do we make sense of those? But on the whole, most Christians committed to God as the maker of heaven and earth, confessing that, um, they at least hold that they are two aspects of creation. 
Um, and so whatever the differing views. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, though, what I'd like to just kind of insert here, Tom, is that in my experience as a pastor and just working with people generally, uh, is that when they think of the unseen, they're thinking of more of the internal life of the Christian. Yeah. They're not thinking about something that's external. They're, it's it's a very subjective way of understanding that. Yeah. Uh, subjective, what I mean by that is that they're thinking that we're talking essentially about psychology yeah. and my personal relationship to God. Yes. You know, and that and that's it. And I think this is where why our, one of the ways in which our focus on uh, propitiation um, kind of takes center sa- stage, you know, in ex- into the exclusion of every other way of thinking or every other dimension of it. I, maybe that's a better way to put it of, of our salvation is that, again, we're focused on the psychology of guilt. Yeah. <clears throat> Not even the objective. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sort of. Uh, fact of guilt. Yeah, I I just feel guilty, and God <laughs> will help me overcome my guilty feelings. Yeah, and that's pretty much it. I think that's where it stops for most people. Yeah, one of the things that I think is important is that we. I like the visible invisible. I've been trying to use that systematically rather than natural, supernatural, or physical, spiritual, mm-hmm. or anything like that. And and, and the reason is because. The scripturally, the visible and in the, the invisible worlds intertwine. Yeah. They're interconnected. Whereas if we talk about physical and spiritual, it's almost like they're two separate realms that don't touch or that barely touch. Yeah. Whereas in, in a biblical view, the, the, the visible world is embedded in the invisible. Yeah. And the two of them are constantly interacting and interpenetrating. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think related to that, that Glenn is that is that people who again uh, have this sort of modern outlook that religion is about sort of the inner motive dimensions of our lives, yeah. they can't they can't sort of get a hold of the idea that there could be a spiritual reality that they're not perceiving. Yeah, because for them, perce- perception is reality when it comes yeah. to the spiritual yeah. realm. So, in other words, if I'm not perceiving it, there's nothing there. Um, we've all experienced, I think, that awkward moment when we've become aware that somebody's been standing behind us for a long time and we didn't <laughs> think anybody was there. <laughs> well, ju- that's just kind of the way it is all the time. I mean, <laughs> there really are, uh, you know, real presences yeah. that are there and we are not apprehending them, but they're there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is fundamental to the Christian reality vision, not merely, you know, um, just a, an accommodation to the world of the biblical, you know, figures. Um, and, and we'll kind of get to that because that's important. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, whatever the differing views out there in sacraments, um, the, the, the fact that the invisible and the spiritual um, is a real part, the heavenly and the earthly is, is a real part, has been confessed by Christians. And I think C.S. Lewis and uh, Herman Bavinck, the famous uh, reform thinker, the two errors um, come in relationship to the re- viewing the reality of the spiritual realm. Um, the first is what you could call the Sadducees. Um, it's also similar to the modern materialist, right? They simply deny it. Um, or, as you say, it, it's an it's a epiphenomena of our material natures that we project onto things or it grows out. Or it's our inner subjective state that is kind of an epiphenomena of our material constitution. So the physical is really all there is or ever will be, or the visible is um, really the only 
we, we can't really go much further other than just looking for other material causes, right? Um, and so there is no infinite mind upon which all things depend, visible and invisible. And there is no reality to the invisible that is not physical in the end. That is one error. So no angels, no Satan, no demons, no evil that isn't simply finitude or, or kind of misbalancing of material power. And then the second view we talked about before is an excessive unhealthy interest in spirits, angels, demons, and Satan. It's sort of seeing the devil um, in your alphabet soup, as someone once said. And so Lewis put it this way, there, <laughs> there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. Um, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So that has been one kind of way in which our modern picture has talked about it. And so you could really see how the Christus Victor model um, or emphasis, biblical emphasis on Christ um, really overcoming the powers of evil and and calling us in his name to to go about you know uh, casting demons out and delivering people from their idols they could see that as just an earlier form of superstition or accommodation to an outmoded um you know view of things and then you have modern protestant theology and it they basically have what uh, a colleague of mine uh, donald wood once called the awkwardness of angels and demons um, and he was referencing uh, <laughs> he was referencing Karl Barth when he had first made his conversion away from liberal theology um, and started to rethink the whole Christian faith in light of what he came to believe was a dis, you know a disruptive of the material fallen world from a, a supernatural order, if you will, the kingdom of God. Um, and Bart had encountered in uh, Bad Ball and different areas of Switzerland uh, the Bloomhart brothers or, or father and son's ministry where they actually had a long ongoing issue of exorcism with uh, one of the young girls in the community who they believed fully was demon-possessed. And in the end, it was, it was their deliverance through Christus Victor. And on her lips, at her deliverance, finally was Christus Victor, Christ as the victory. And that began to make Bart, you know, say, wait a minute, there's something else going here. We can't just reduce to the kind of the modern notions um, that Protestantism have left us with. And so one of those, uh, you're right. Um, on the one side, you kind of had the Protestant switch since Schleiermacher that really ignored all of that and really turned to the subjective or the kind of existential, right? Um, belief in God is about my feeling of absolute dependence, um, and yet it's about that absolute dependence giving me my kind of moral freedom, right? And so it was. It wasn't. There wasn't much more to it. And then the other side is, yeah, it was really just an outmoded view of our psychological states or some, some, something about our inner life that we're. Uh, I think Strauss put it this way: we're projecting our highest human ideals onto the angelic, and then we're projecting or recognizing our fallen kind of, uh, you know, our, our tra the tragic results of the abuse of our freedom, and that's our demonic natures, right? So it was this kind of psychologizing of it, um, and it was an embarrassment for the so-called, you know, academic theologians who wanted to be popular in uh, increasingly materialist um, world to kind of feel awkward about things like that. So they had to kind of reduce them to something else. 
Um, but all the while, you're. I think this. Go ahead. Yeah, this is a, this is a good point to just note is how different the moment is that we find ourselves in than yeah. the mid nineteenth century. Yeah, uh, as relates to this, you know, Glenn has brought up many times that um, the, the the students that he had at Central uh, believed in uh, unseen things. That's so right. It's 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 as though. It's as though evangelicals are kind of getting over a hangover from the 19th century still yeah. and are a little slow on the uptake yeah. to sort of reclaim our own way of looking at the world that pagans have already kind of found themselves uh, embracing. And, and I don't mean, obviously, that we have exactly the same understanding of things, but I, I'm, what I'm getting at is uh, there are people out there who are no longer um, limited in their thinking to a, a kind of materialist uh, empiricist approach to reality. They, they're open and, and in fact, yeah. even more than open, they're looking, they're, yeah. they're experimenting, they're doing, they're doing yeah. things that are really kind of dangerous. Yeah. One, one of the, uh, one of my former students is a, um, I believe it's called Kesemet. Uh, it's, uh, actually worshiping ancient Egyptian gods. Yeah. And he has a tutelary deity, that he firmly believes is real, you know, is yeah. an actual entity and all of that. He considers me a an ally <laughs> because both of us acknowledge something beyond the material. Yeah, and so many people he deals with are materialists who just think he's crazy. Yeah. Um, the the fact that that I believe in God means, in a sense, I'm on his side. Yeah, which yeah, is rather an curious it. thing because, you know, well, yeah. Well, wasn't it Lewis who said that we might fi- have to find ourselves or find our way back to paganism before we can find our way back to Christianity? Yeah. yeah. I think he said something to that effect. Yeah. And th- yeah, that, it's a very rich insight. And, and I think like like both of you are, are noting that kind of modern the-, the modern world and modern theology basically ended up on the denial side um, of those two eras that, that Lewis was talking about. Um, but then the flip side is, you know, it's what Francis Schaeffer used to always talk about, right? Um, because our lives do, the way we're constituted requires uh, meaning, but we cannot find it any longer in, any, in, in, in the realm of the objective or because it's been reduced to the material. So we take this kind of irrational leap to grab a hold of something, and that's where your things like the occult come in. That's where your things, uh, hyper-spirituality um, witchcraft, you know, all the, the kind of ways in which we can kind of try to bump up against something we know is there, but doesn't press through in a way that we have clarity. So we tend to go to extremes with it. Um, and, and I think some variations of the, even the Christian charismatic movement can go in this without the kind of proper tempering, not of a modernist theology, but a sound, sounder biblical container to make sure that some of what it sees as the, the invisible is, isn't, uh, isn't not merely the psychosomatic, but the demonic, um, for that matter. Um, so you see some of the stuff, uh, in my, my view figures like, you know, Kenneth Copeland and the like, are just, uh, you know, they're, they're, they definitely have a very strong connection to the occult in, in certain ways in their understanding of charismata. Um, I don't think we have too many fans out there, but uh, of Co- from from the Copeland crowd. Uh, we need to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's worth noting you, you use the phrase psychosomatic 
Yeah. Um, which is good. You have certainly a good word. Yeah. But when you're looking at the, at, at human beings, yeah. we're more than psyche and soma. That's right. Yeah. You know, we, we actually should be thinking in pneuma psychosomatic. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that um, was, yeah, spirit, that was like my point too, is that we tend to reduce it merely yeah. as saying, oh, they're just, this is just psychosomatic, but it, it, there is something more going on, even with the charismatic movement. Yeah. Well, yeah. Glenn, Glenn, could you spell that out a little bit? So you're, you're talking about sort of the tri, the tri, the tripart understanding of human sure. beings as opposed to a dualism. Could you help our, our listeners make, yeah. sort of okay. by unpacking that? So the word soma um, in Greek, it's kind of a holistic term, but its primary referent is the body. Mm-hmm. So um, present your bodies, your soma, as living sacrifices, okay, in Romans 12. Um, so that's the body. The soul is the psyche in Greek. Um, it's our, the root of our word psychology. So when you're talking about something that is psychosomatic, it is something that where the mind affects the body or arguably, you know, you could conceivably have it go the other way around. But we always think in terms of mental health, in terms of either the psyche or psychosomatic. Yeah. We ignore the fact that there is yet another dimension uh, to the human being, which is the spirit. Yeah. And so we have the, that, that's in Greek, pneuma. Um, uh, so a, a full-orbed view of mental health really has to take into account the spiritual dimensions of things, yeah. not just our psychology or our body's influence on our psychology. Yeah. We, have now, to, we have to bring the spirit, into the spiritual into it as well. Can you comb that out a little bit? Because I think a, a lot of folks uh, conflate spirit and soul. In other words, they think, okay, I'm depressed. I've got a spiritual problem. Um, you know, can, can you kind of comb well, that out a little bit? Actually, sometimes depression can be a spiritual yeah, problem. More and more, I think it is, yeah. Yeah, but, um, okay, the, the word soul, actually, if you go, let, let's, let's go to Genesis 1. Uh, where, you know, God gives man the breath of life and he becomes a living soul. Um, That's actually the word that's used there. Nefesh is the Hebrew. Um, So the the man as a living soul consists of his body made from the dust of the earth and something that that God puts in him. I like. I actually kind of like the Greek here because it it refers specifically to all of those things that are that make you you. That um, frequently the word soul is actually translated as life. Whoever would save his life must lose it. Yeah. That's soul. Yeah. Okay. It, it it it's the things that make you you. The things that that make you a distinctive person. The things that make you um, how you think, how you behave, your likes, your dislikes. All of those kinds of things are the things that are wrapped up in your soul. The spirit is something a little bit different. Um, the spirit is actually you know well God breathed um, the, his spirit into man and he became a living soul. The spirit is the thing that actually animates you. It's the thing that actually gives you life. And I think a good way of looking at this is that we are spiritually dead apart from Christ. But in Christ, 
we are made alive because we are given his spirit, the Holy Spirit living in us. In fact, there are many passages in Scripture where you can't distinguish whether it's referring to the Holy Spirit or the Christian spirit when it's talking about the spirit there. They're very closely connected, and our spirit is what is now alive in Christ. That should ultimately affect everything else about us, certainly, and that's something that we grow into but will only be there completely with the resurrection. That dimension of our life, the dimension that relates to the invisible directly, whether it be God or the demons, Mm -hmm. that part of us is what we're talking about or what I'm talking about when I talk about the spirit as being something that's important for mental health. We have to take into account that, not just psychological stuff, not just chemical imbalances, not just any of those kinds of things. We have to take into account, if we're going to have a fully orbed view of mental health, we have to take into account those spiritual dimensions that go beyond just our personalities. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a helpful way of to approach it. I think that um, the, the point you make about uh, the spirit as that uh, dimension of ourselves that is, uh, you know, interacting with this unseen realm, as opposed to, say, the soul, which maybe has a more biochemical, physical uh, sort of basis. So when we think emotions, I think emotions are things that are more, um, I think, uh, or better understood to be soulish in character. Um, so anyway, but anyway, uh, so we took a little detour there, yeah. and uh, but we're back. Well, and, and, I think, <laughs> and early Christians would often talk about that relationship, the kind of integrated of spiritual emphasis in soul with using rational soul. But the point was not in, an intellect thought of as a brain. The, it's, it was spiritual. This is the this is the and, and this is where the ideas and the way in which um, the 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 created order. Um, participates in, you know, in relationship to God, and our intellect has a capacity and antenna to know and relate to that is part of that which is spiritual. This is why bad ideas, demonic ideas, are not simply neutral phrases bouncing around in a head. They're spiritual, right? They, they're spiritual. The, the whole world is filled with meaning, either ordered towards God the right way or in rebellion against it. Um, and, you know, there is kind of an either or at, at a certain point of, of where our ideas that we relate to and understand the world with are deriving from. And, and so this is why I think one of the things is, you know, when you talk of doctrines of demons or you think about what goes on in the garden when Satan speaks to Eve and then to Adam and puts out a proposal. Right, appeals to them in their rational natures as well, and then calls them into questioning the truth that God communicates to them, right? So you have that kind of interaction uh, happening, you know, I think right there. And then when they rebel, of course, the rest, they surely die, but they keep living at least in terms of their, uh, you know, their embodied soul existence. Yeah, it's important to remember, too, that the mind and the brain are not the same thing. Yeah. We interact with the invisible world constantly every time we think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Matthias Desmet uh, does some work on this very very thing. Um, if you read his book, uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, he explores yeah. uh, the remarkable uh, observations that have been made about people who have actually lost half a brain. Uh, 
and or more (laughs) and they're still able to function um uh i don't know what to make of all that um i'm just repeating what i read with uh regard to to the work he's uh he's read but it it just there's there's more uh you know to heaven and earth than than is contained in your philosophy i can't remember where that's from but that line yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a whole lot more going on out there than we know. Yeah, <laughs> and, and understand. This, and and this is interesting because I think one of the turns it takes in the current world we live in. I've often talked about kind of what I would call the turn to the human human will, and as basically the center stage. You know, my choices, my body, my choice kind of psychology is behind that is a certain understanding that I think Descartes has been pegged with it's called angelism um you could call it demonism if you want but it's the way that we transcend our material embodied world through our ideas or our will really our will um and that will becomes basically the the driving center of what it means to be a human and so um in order for something to be true or good for me, it must be the product of my will in this under in this understanding. And this is this is a new thing that is brought, I think, to a lot of the questions about these bad spirits and the demonic and the re-embrace of religion, um, you know, and paganism and things like that. It's because a lot of times they are embraced first and foremost because they are variations of of what we want and we want to choose. In other words, they're things that mimic our will in some way. It's like, it's for example, all the people that have those little, what are those uh, Native American, what are they called? Um, the, the little symbols they put dream in. Dream catchers. Dream catchers. That's dream catchers. That's more about the, you know, in, at least in the current situation, it's, it's more about the person's uh, will personality um, than it is actually being a yeah. partaker of those, those, you know, practices. But I think increasingly we are moving to where those practices are starting to take over merely our identity um, as individual willing Asians. Well, I think this uh, is where, you know, the observation I think is important to, or is, is uh, relevant that uh, the heresies of our time are anthropological in character as opposed to Christological or yes. Trinitarian. So we know we look at the early church and we look at the heresies that, that the church struggled with at that time. They were all related to the, you know, the humanity and divinity of Christ or the, tri- the Trinity or what have you. And we, we uh, today are not really, you know, that's kind of like stuff that, only real people who are into sort of the, the nooks and crannies of theology are interested in it. today. The debates all surround human nature and whether there even is a human nature. Yeah. And if there is a human nature, what it can, what constitutes it. And I think this, this point you're making Tom about the will as yeah. being the sort of the core of yeah. what it means to be a human being. Uh, you know, we see it in, in, uh, you know, Schopenhauer, see it yeah. in Nietzsche we see a bit but what would you what you have um is that you know something that comes I think you know I think a good argument has been made about its history in in theology and t- sort of like yeah. the trends in theology in the late medieval period and how they've brought us to this point we've covered this ground yeah. many many times but I think 
what what I think really uh, ought to be recovered in, yeah. in terms of our anthropology is the role of judgment. I mean, in other words, the faculty of human judgment as being really uh, the the center central thing, and then that is what orders the rest of yeah. your life. It's not as though you don't have will. Of course you have will. It's not yeah, as though yeah. you don't have emotions. Of course you have emotions yeah. or passions or any of these other things, but you have to govern. Uh, so that's the place where, you know, uh, I think we need to take people when it comes to this, you know, who are you? You yeah. can actually condemn your own passions and still be you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what's lost on these people. Yeah, that that's right. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm going to go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, we're, we, we've avoided using the N word here, nominalism, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's, it's, it's fundamentally what, what we're dealing with. Um, the, the argument that there is no common nature, that things, you know, everything is its own unique thing. And yeah. we just sort of classify things together for convenience sake. Yeah. Um, that's what allows you to define yourself any way you want to. Yeah. That's the thing that, uh, that makes it impossible to define what a woman is for some people. Um, yeah, the prime minister of New Zealand couldn't define a woman uh, in a press conference the other day. That was hilarious. <laughs> right. But, but if, if you take an extreme nominalist position, that's where you end up. Yeah. The word woman is simply a linguistic construct for a particular set. And how you define the set is, is up to you. It's arbitrary. Yeah, that's and that that I think is I mean, this is where I think back to uh, your point, too, Chris, is I think what happened here is because we did stop paying attention to God and the true nature of God, the Trinity and all of those doctrinal points from the early church, which they carved out that we have lost what it means to be made in the image of God. Right. And so if you don't know what anything about the true nature of God, how in the world are you going to know what it means to be made in, in God's image in, in, you know, your nature, your purpose, the way you order your, your loves and, and make your judgments. Um, and I think one of the gifts, and this is one of the things about the Christus Victor emphasis is one of the gifts of our faith is first and foremost comes right out of, you know, our commandments. Some, I am the Lord, your God, right? Um, you shall have no other gods before me. That premises our will. That premises everything else. Um, and, and the rest of our judgments are related from that. It means I'm not absolute, and I am not the defining center of who I am and how I'm to orient myself. And this gets, of course, we had other gods before us, and now it's our will. <laughs> or behind all of them is basically our the center stage of our will rather than God's will, following Satan. <laughs> um, and... And so Christ's victory over that um, is what the church kind of runs with and should continue to run with in its emphasis um, and actually direct that now towards this nominalist view of the self in particular. I mean, maybe another way of putting it is I think groups like CRT and a lot of these critical theories have taken a kind of secular variation of this theme. And so they've taken the fact that we have oppressive structures. We have systems in which people's will override other people's will unjustly, whether their interpretation's good or not is a different story. Um, and that, that there is a need for something to come in and liberate from real injustices 
where this takes place. Their problem is it's all in the imminent frame and it's all based on a nominalist conception of the self put into groupthink, right? If this group identifies this way or can be identified this way, then they must all have, you know, be interpreted basically, you know, one group oppressor, one group oppressed. And the only solution is, is within just reorganizing that power structure and usually allowing for injustices to continue if they make up for the lack, you know, if they make up for some past injustice. And this is exactly one of the things that Christ's victory overcomes. We're where dealing with the guilt, and the, you know, ontologically, the guilt issue, um, not merely my subjective feelings, but actually doing away with all those ways in which I have been an idolater and unjust um, clears the path for a proper relationship with someone else versus me having to go around flagellating endlessly to make up for some sin that I may or may not be guilty of. Well, another feature to this, uh, and it gets us back to the reality of uh, these uh, powers that we noted that are, are real at the beginning of the show, what I what I wonder about is um, whether or not we can talk about how those oppress us. Um, so let's say, you know, when we're trying to understand, say, racism, or we're trying to understand something else, mm-hmm. um, we we immediately go to self interests of of different groups and why those groups maybe pursue those interests at the expense of other groups. Our minds don't go to uh, the influence of the demonic yeah. upon people. Um, yeah. Why? Why don't we go there? Uh, that, <laughs> I guess that's the thing I'm, I'm puzzled by. Uh, why Christians don't see a connection between uh, demonic oppression and these other things that they're concerned about? I think there are two reasons. First of all, we're used to thinking of demons as influencing individuals, not as influencing cultures. Yeah. You know, we see we see the demoniacs in the Gospels, you know, and we think that that's the way demons work. They work in individuals. And if that individual happens to get gain power or whatever, then maybe that they can, you know, Hitler or something like that. But as was pointed out last time, Jesus's parable about the unclean spirit that leaves a person, goes through waterless places, doesn't find a new abode, goes back to the old home, mm-hmm. brings seven worse than himself. Jesus says that's his generation. That isn't just referring to an individual. It's referring to a, 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 his generation, a culture. Um, so uh, we don't, we don't, we tend to individualize it far too much. It goes along with our idea of salvation as being a purely individual matter as well. Right. Um, the other half of it is that culturally we have been taught to believe that anything that happens in the visible world has causes in the visible world. Right. Yeah. And thus we don't, you know, we don't really think even if we do consider demonic activity occasionally, we don't really think that demonic activity actually has any real physical effects in this world, except as it may influence an individual psychology. Yeah. yeah. I saw something here recently, another substack. We talked about Naomi Wolf's substack, the, you know, the last show. This is Matthew B. Crawford's substack, and he was mm. exploring the connection between the, the psyops 
that mm-hmm. were developed after um, 9-11. So what, what, what he notes is that um, basically psychological operations have been a part of warfare forever. I mean, uh, pr- propaganda is, you know, that's what we're talking about. Um, and we saw it crudely uh, put into practice in the Second World War and and other conflicts. But with the Internet and with uh, the subtle sort of uh, abilities that we have now to to send messages, it's gone to a, just a different level. And with the war on terror, uh, those those tools that have been uh, developed to influence foreign populations were turned on the United States. And so different parts of the United States now are subject to uh, the targeting of uh, in our own government to pursue its interests because, it, you know, the particularly with populist movements. So populism, everything from the Tea Party to the Trump phenomenon or whatever, is seen by, um, you know, those uh, people in the uh, knowledge class, the administrative state, as being uh, a threat but also, you know, potentially uh, influenced by foreign powers. So there's a kind of a obsession uh, with that. And when I thought about what Crawford was getting at, I thought, you know what? Uh, I can see that you've got a point there, but that does not preclude or exclude the possibility of the demonic also being at work. Yeah. So it seemed to me that the Crawford, for all of his, uh, strengths is 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 not letting his his mind move to the thing that we're talking about right now because it's not a matter of you know getting back to our you know point you made the point you made earlier time about um, you know uh, the substitutionary atonement is yeah. not threatened by Christus Victor yeah. <laughs> in other words these things are not like mutually yeah. exclusive yeah. Uh, it, it, I think the same thing is true with uh, psyops and yeah. demonic activity are not mutually exclusive either. These, these things can be both uh, in play. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I mean, I think in, in Jesus just talks about it on, you know, I mean, one of the things Jesus does, he, you know, he seems to show pretty good awareness of kind of the, the, the Jewish apocalyptic tradition and its reading of kind of the cosmic battle uh, between Satan as the fallen angel and and his minions, basically that that are a part of what is oppressing everyone in in their sin, and it is not meant to talk about the innocence of the human being. It's a, it's something actually that goes along with the guilt of the human by giving themselves over to Satan. Right? They've be, now given into to the bondage, and their will will has been given over. Um, and so one of the things that Christ comes is not only to bring the kingdom, but as part of that um, is to defeat Satan and rescue humanity from his seductive, malicious, dominating, you know, aspects. And and I think that when you see technology, when you see medicine, when you see government, when you see institutions that are part of this a seductive, malicious, dominating intention, and you know that it isn't the liberating power of the kingdom then you can't help but start to realize that there is something more sinister and dark going on than just, like you said, the sociological or the, uh, you know, material or the political. Yeah. yeah a, a passage of scripture that, uh, that I think uh, is helpful as we reflect on this is actually uh, Judges chapters two and three. 
Hmm. So there you see in the, uh, you know, the description of the, what I've often thought of as kind of like the cycle, the almost like the washing machine cycle <laughs> of, uh, you know, things getting worse and worse and worse, but just there's this, uh, this, uh, you know, very predictable, uh, process where you see idolatry, judgment, you know, repentance and deliverance and, and then start over. <laughs> what you see in all that is this remarkable statement about what God is doing. So when is, when Israel, uh, goes whoring after other gods, in other words, giving themselves over doing something that they're guilty of because they have broken covenant, God sells them. That's the language. God sells them into yeah. the hands of their enemies. Yeah. So he sells them into the hands of their enemies. And then when they repent, the Lord has mercy on them and he redeems them, them. Yeah. through the judge. Yeah. The judge is sent to redeem yeah. them. So he buys yeah. them back. So he sells them, buys them back, sells them. But that, but you know what, what got that, what, what led to the sale in the first place was the guilt. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in other words, there was something that they had done that was wrong. Yeah. That was, so you, you do have these, these powers. Yeah. We have been given over. That's another yeah. way it's put. Uh, think about the Apostle Paul. I've handed him over to Satan, yes. so that he might be—he you know, could be taught a lesson. Yeah, you know. So um, you can be uh, oppressed by demonic powers and still be guilty. In fact, the reason why you're being oppressed by demonic powers is because you've already given yourself before God gave you over. If you get yeah. that drift. Yeah, that's, that's very important to note. And I think it helps explain why so much in Christian history, um, the, the notion of sanctification, um, like, let's start with our baptismal vows or, or, you know, confirmation where we turn and renounce Satan in all of his ways as the life we now have. But connected with that is the fact that part and parcel to our sanctification is being weaned off of our idols because our minds, as Calvin said, are idol-making factories because of the way we were, you know, we were um, basically let go of and allowed to become, um, our minds to become darkened and enslaved. And so that new light of Christ and the Spirit's work in us is kind of doing the reversal now. <laughs> and we need to continuously bring truth in so that we're weaned away from the the, the false views of God that that order us the wrong way. Um, and then secondly, it makes sense of the life of, of dealing with our passions the right way, right? Reordering them. You know, Augustine will talk about it in terms of reordering our loves, right? God first, then, you know, neighbor and self-love and, and the way that fashions. That's one way of looking at it. I mean, there are other ways the church has looked at it, but it really saw the pagan virtue traditions had a lot to offer, but they weren't, they couldn't go here. They couldn't wean us off the idolatry and they couldn't purify that love. But then when refabricated and tied to faith, hope, and love, right? Um, this actually could set the stage for a very powerful transformation. I think that transformed in its better sense, everything good we've come to know out of the, the history of the church. Yeah, I, I like I like uh, you know the fact that you brought up Augustine there and uh, ordering our loves. What's uh, implicit in that, of course, is the exercise of judgment, our ability yeah. to uh, to recognize yeah. that some things are more valuable than other things, or more worthy of our devotion and love than other things. So, even when we talk about love, it doesn't like uh, sort of 
get us out of the sort of the, uh, a frame of mind that uh, in which judgment is being exercised. Judgment yeah. is always being exercised. Yeah. Um, and we have to make distinctions. We have to evaluate, yeah. uh, determine the value of things. So God is supremely valuable. People yeah. are valuable too, but, but understood uh, as being uh, deriving their value from God. Yeah. So, you know, again, that's, that's how we, we exercise judgment in these matters. Yeah. And and it is, I mean, I think, I think it's stunning. And this is one of the things, you know, I think we're getting to see enacted, you know, at least in the world today. Um, it, it, it's stunning how the a mind given over and often sold on, on a good, I'll give you an example. We'll talk about issues of, well, well, issues of a culture trying to suppress the self-chosen identity or the or the particular group that I am a part of, right? So everything is a, a competition between wills, and some people are higher in the hierarchy illegitimately, and it all becomes a battle with power. And one of the things I was reading about when I was kind of prepping today is how Satan, especially in relationship to the issue of the cross and, and the whole trial prior to the cross, Satan wants to use power, to carry out his work. And that is his tool and vehicle. And that is why, in, a, in an interesting way, Christ subverts that power because he is more powerful, right? Um, and any power that even Satan has is, has been granted. Um, but Christ doesn't do it the same way. I mean, there is a time in which he comes back with full power and establishes the kingdom. But his way of subversion is before the power structures to submit and to undergo and ends up in the process putting death to death and overcoming death, hell, and the grave. And this is why, I mean, someone like John of Damascus, he has this great little um, early theologian, has this, uh, he talks about the, the cross and what happened. He goes, uh, death has been brought low, the sin of our first parents destroyed, hell has been plundered, resurrection bestowed, the power given us to demise the things of this world and even death itself. But his whole point and the rest of it is how Christ does this almost, in a sense, by submitting to the powers that are, all in an attempt in which they're basically submitting to his power. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great way to end, because uh, we've gotten to that point where we should wrap things up. Um, anything else you want to say, Glenn, as we do that? Yeah, where you were going there is actually very close to one of the early uh, understandings of the atonement that Christ was paying a ransom to Satan for us, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, which yeah. was rejected yeah. for a whole bunch of reasons yeah. ultimately. Yeah. But you're getting very close to that yeah. um, in in the direction you're going there. It's just sort of an interesting little sidelight. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I think this is a really important topic, and I think yeah. you know that that this is something that we need to spend a lot more time as Christians thinking about. Well, anyway, thanks for a good uh, topic, Tom. And thank you, uh, PugCast listener, for getting all the way to the end of the show. We've had a few technical glitches here. Hopefully they uh, will be all cleared up uh, by the time you get the show. But we're, we're glad that uh, you've gotten to this point. And if you like uh, what you hear and want to support our work, there's a way to do that. And that's through Patreon. And there's a link in the show notes uh, that will uh, permit you to... Uh, check out how that's done and make a pledge if that if that's something you'd like to do anyway 
enough for now. Thanks a lot, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might also enjoy the new book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, now available on Amazon. Amazon.